Before uh, I invite Adnan to speak to us, I'm just going to read our passage for today. And it is found in the beginning of Matthew, uh, both chapters 1 and 2. And I'll read uh, the first part, which is about Joseph and um, uh, before Jesus' birth, and then after Jesus uh, has been born and what happens in the aftermath of that. So let's uh, read the passage. So this is what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And then moving into chapter 2. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and, and under, in accordance with what the, in accordance with the time he had learned from he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Thanks for wonderfully reading that, Joel. I'm going to pray for us before I get into this at all, so why don't you just all join me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening. God, thank you that we get to gather here, that we get to um, sit under your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would just help our hearts and our minds just connect with everything that you are speaking this evening to us um, through this passage and through the, the person of Joseph, and, um, and yeah, just um, take us beyond, Lord, um, what we hear, hear about in this um, um, in, in this passage into our own lives, Lord. Help us to obey and apply it and be changed and transformed um, in the power of your spirit. Thank you, God, that we get to worship you this evening and that we get to carry on that worship even beyond this evening to our everyday lives, Lord. So yeah, be with us right now as we uh, just delve deeper into this. Amen. Well, Good to be with you guys, and uh, for those of you that don't know me, um, my name is Adnan. I've been a part of Christchurch for a very long while now, about 10 years, 11 years. Uh, in my day job, I work in communications, and, and yeah, that's, that's just how I make my living at the moment. But yeah, anyway, 
Enough about me. We're in a series at the moment uh, focusing in the season of Advent. Um, and it's this, it's this season where we have this, this sort of expectation, this waiting, this longing. A season to remember the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago, but even more than that, where we get to actively wait for his return. And in this, uh, in this series, we're getting to engage with some of the, the prophecies, the people, and the stories, and the promises of, uh, of God himself that he makes um, through characters that we see who are central to the story of Jesus' birth. And these characters themselves longed for and hoped for the hope um, of God's promises being fulfilled uh, during very turbulent and difficult and challenging times. So the question for us is, what can we learn from these people about living with this same hope in the context of our world today. Well, today we're looking at the character of, of Joseph, um, and uh, uh, I'll make the point because Pete mentioned this morning, he confused him a bit, threw him off a bit. It's not the Joseph of the Old Testament, it's the Joseph of the New Testament, two very different characters, but they do share something in common. They're, they both seem to be these chronic dreamers. They just keep getting these dreams that sort of change the direction of their lives. But on reading this passage, here are some initial thoughts that I just had that I noted down. Boy engaged to girl. Girl gets pregnant without boy. Boy considers leaving girl. Boy then has dream telling him she's actually still a virgin, marry her. Boy and girl marry and have the baby, but first they must travel 80 miles through treacherous mountainous terrain before the baby is born. Boy, girl, baby need to escape the country to avoid being killed. Boy, girl, and baby then return to land where they were being hunted to raise their child. In summary. No, um, anyway. It's not exactly the fairy tale romance that you'll see on Disney+. Plus. It's not really the sort of Hollywood tale that would sort of get signed off immediately. It's a real hard story to process, especially from the perspective of someone like Joseph. I mean, really, it's been about two months since um, I got married, and if... if <laughs> and if... At any point during my engagement, Jess turned around to me and said, I am pregnant. Well, I'd probably have a few questions of my own since we hadn't really known each other that, that well. <laughs> yeah, I made the point this morning that, you know, she works in medicine, so her knowledge of biology is definitely more sophisticated than mine, but I think I learned enough in school to know how these things should work. So it's no surprise then that Joseph also, <laughs> you know, thought something was seriously up. I mean, I can only imagine Mary just going about trying to convince him, babe, please understand that I promise you, I promise you, God did this to me. It just happened. <laughs> Joseph's just being like, I, I don't know, I don't know, babe, this is, this is just strange, I don't know what you say. Anyway, it would take something pretty significant to convince someone like Joseph that something supernatural had taken place. But anyway, three things I think that we can draw from this passage are this, are these. Ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. And the second is God chooses very ordinary means to bring about his purpose in the world. He, he uses very ordinary circumstances, everyday situations, everyday decisions to bring about his purpose. And the third is extraordinary purpose. God is fulfilling what he has spoken about all along, to bring about hope and salvation to the world. What I love about Joseph is just how ordinary he is. 
There wasn't anything outstandingly significant about who he was, where he was from, what career he had, what parents he had. He's just this young man that's pledged to be married to this young woman, Mary. He lived in an ordinary town and had an ordinary job. In fact, we don't actually see Joseph saying anything in this passage at all, and yet he has such a significant part to play. It's hard to see him even as a main character in this story, but yet I I think that's the point of it. God uses an ordinary person like Joseph to craft his story and bring about his purpose, and God uses ordinary people like you and me. Joseph was so ordinary, and we see that from Matthew 13, 55. We see that he's, he had an ordinary job. He was a craftsman or a builder of some sort. Matthew, the author of this gospel, does this whole who do you think you are thing right at the start and traces both Joseph and Mary's ancestry all the way back to Abraham through King David, going through a whole line of kings. And I wonder how someone like Joseph must have felt knowing this rich ancestral royal heritage. I wonder how someone like me would feel if I knew that about my genealogy. Maybe I'd feel a sense of, of, of shame and anger for not being able to take advantage of this royal inheritance. Maybe I'd feel a sense of pride even, knowing that you know, I'm more entitled to, this, to, to royalty, to rulership, than many of the rulers are. Maybe I'd sense... Um, I'd, have a fear, I'd, I'd actually have a sense of fear more than anything else, knowing that if someone um, like King Herod found out about this, I'd actually pretty much be very dead. And after all, Herod actually didn't have any legitimate claims to royalty in his own genealogy, whereas Joseph and Mary are linked directly to King David himself. But this didn't mean anything for them in their world. Their reality felt so far removed from royalty, so far back in the rearview mirror. They're just this young couple trying to make their ends meet, trying to navigate their way in this complicated world. And they were both really people from nowhere special in particular, Nazareth, an obscure town 80 miles from Jerusalem. And in the world's eyes, there were nobodies from nowhere. Now, Anybody and everybody can make themselves out to be a somebody, pretend that they're from somewhere, right? Make ourselves out to be more accomplished or, or, or give ourselves better credentials than we actually have or, 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 you know, show off our achievements and our successes, our education history, our gloriously perfect Instagram accounts. But some don't even need to tinker or pretend. You don't need to go far from here, actually, to um, find what, you know, you know these blue plaques that you see in, across London with people's names on it, someone significant lived there or worked there. Well, just down the road from here, down Bow, actually, there's a, there's a blue plaque um, that you might have noticed uh, to a guy called Thomas Barnardo, who was a local philanthropist, and he set up a, a charity for destitute children. He did some magnificent work around here, and, he, and, he, and he's got a blue plaque there. And it's one of many blue plaques across the city to someone who was renowned, who used to live there or work there. And the reality is, you and I will probably never get a blue plaque. We probably won't. And I can probably imagine that if I ever did get a blue plaque, it would probably be in a very uh, tiny corner in Stratford Shopping Centre. You know the old dingy, dark one, not the Westfield, not the new one, which is nice and sleek, but like the new one, uh, the old one, somewhere in a corner there that says Adnan Khan worked here as a checkout boy. (laughs) 
Now, I've got nothing against blue plaques. Please don't get me wrong. I think it's great that we honor people that have sacrificially worked hard to make a difference. But the reality is we probably won't get one ourselves. We're not all people of great distinction or in highly noble situations. And neither were Joseph and Mary. They weren't household names. And, and in fact, in, in Luke chapter 148, Mary describes herself as someone of a humble, a low estate. She would have, if you asked her, she would have described herself as, I'm just an average girl, I'm just an ordinary girl. But yet she marveled at, and was astonished at the fact that God would look upon her and favor her and include and use someone like her in his grand plan. God uses ordinary people to accomplish his plans. God also uses ordinary means to bring about his purpose. God uses ordinary means, ordinary, everyday situations, circumstances, and decisions. And there are so many factors that play here in the story, a lot that we just don't have time to go into depth with. But what's amazing about Joseph and Mary's journey is that a lot of it is a result of very ordinary circumstances. I think it's clear from the entire Bible, not just uh, this passage, that God uses ordinary things to bring about his purpose for us. For instance, he chooses to enter human existence through something as ordinary as human pregnancy. God uses the decisions of leaders and kings that shape Joseph and Mary's journey. He uses government policy. And then Joseph just falls asleep a few times and has a few dreams. Now, I, I don't tend to get many dreams myself, and if I have them, I barely ever remember them. Uh, and, and, but on the other hand, Jess, she dreams all the time. She'll just take a nap, and she'll have a dream. She'll just dream, dream, dream. She's a big dreamer. And pretty much, um, yeah, whenever she tells me about them, you know, I sort of like hear it, and I go, uh-huh, uh-huh, that sort of, yeah. It some, falls somewhere in between the Hunger Games and Jurassic Park, or whatever that we've watched that evening, or whatever place we've visited in that week. And sometimes... They can be dreams of me humiliating myself in public, and you know, I don't know if that's a subconscious thing, and whatever it is, I uh, hope it doesn't happen now. But there have been some dreams that we've both had, which we felt more than just random dreams. They've actually led us to very significant and powerful conversations with family and with friends, or decisions that we've had to make. Some dreams have resonated with the people that we've dreamt about. Um, and, and this might seem bizarre to some, but at least from my own experience and those of others, I'm pretty convinced that God can use something like a dream to communicate something significant to us. And at least we know that he does so with Joseph. And then we have a pregnancy. Now, please don't hear me wrong. The, the conception of Jesus was not normal at all. It was an extraordinary event. We see that it's a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. The virgin shall give a birth. The virgin birth was extraordinary. Something that was never done before and never done again. This was totally unique and seemed unbelievable. But yet, what's so astounding is to think that God... God, the creator of the universe, would use something as common as human pregnancy to enter our existence. So ordinary. He could have chosen a million different ways to make his entrance into human history, but yet he chose to, get, to, to bring about salvation, to bring about his entrance to human history through an ordinary birth. We also see God using 
government decisions. What God used to send Joseph to Bethlehem from Galilee wasn't an angel or even a dream. It was just an ordinary government policy, a census that was issued by the Roman emperor. And we can read about the census, not in this passage, but we read about it in in Luke chapter 2. And it seems that Mary and Joseph had to move in haste because they had to get to Bethlehem. I mean, she was about to to pop. She had to get there, trek through 80 miles of dangerous mountainous terrains to get there, um, which back then would have been really dangerous before the baby arrived. And, 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 you know, they wanted to, it seems like they wanted to be settled at least when they got there so that the baby could be delivered safely. And I think if I was... Joseph, as an East London guy, I'd just be like, God, come on, man, allow me, allow me, come on, why, why? The, the girl I'm engaged to is pregnant, and now I've got to move back to my parents, we ain't got no money, I'm not prepared for this, why are you making me do this? And now the baby's born, now I've got to run away to another country, and now you're telling me that I've got to live there, I don't know how I'm going to do this, allow me. That's probably what my response would be like. That's probably, even in the, in the small day-to-day things, I find myself doing that. God, God, why is this happening? Why? And I would need to be reminded by something like 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says this, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, the lowest common denominator, the mundane things, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever circumstance we face, we have an opportunity to honor the Lord. And Joseph didn't necessarily get to choose his circumstances. He didn't get to choose his situation, but he did get to choose his response. And we too will find ourselves in in situations quite often in life that feel beyond our control. Situations that we don't necessarily get to choose And we don't have to go too far back in our memory to to recognize the the years that we've just lived through. We might not be able to choose our circumstances right now, but we do get to choose our response. And Joseph chose to respond in faith and obedience. Even in the most difficult of times, we see God uses Joseph through the trials and through the difficulties. I think it would have been very easy for someone like Joseph to turn inwards and into despair. Instead, he chose to put his hope in God, trusting in his goodness and in his promises. You've probably heard it said that you're either in a trial right now, that you're coming out of a trial, or you're just about to go into one. It just seems the way of the world, the way of living in a broken and fallen world. And it's not even in just the big things like what Joseph might have faced. We also see it in the everyday circumstances of life, in the ordinary day-to-day realities of life. These ordinary circumstances that come about and challenge us, challenge our response. So how do you respond when your Wi-Fi is disconnecting, the sink is blocked again, there's no money left in the account, you're forced to get an expensive dentist appointment, the car needs servicing, people cut you off in traffic, there's an election of a new president or a new government, you're behind on your wedding planning, your exams are coming up, your dissertation's due, you have more applications and cover letters to send out, the fridge is empty, your delivery's late, your shelves don't look right, the washing machine keeps rattling, you get sent another impolite email at work, your boss is having a go at you, and your parents are just draining your patience. That's not an extensive list, by the way. (laughs) 
All these mundane daily things that we experience are opportunities to demonstrate our trust in God. All these ordinary situations in life can either strengthen our trust or they can highlight that our trust is not in him and maybe in something else. What are your trials that you are facing today? Is it highlighting that you're trusting in God? Or could it be revealing that you're trusting in something else? Are we turning inwardly? Are we giving in to despair? Are we holding on to the hope that God has called us to? Like Joseph, are we seeking to to model godly character in tough situations? It would have been very easy for someone like Joseph to, to get Mary in trouble, to get her ostracized, to get her... Pretty much excommunicated from her, from her family and her community for her presumed adultery, which of course would have, would have very likely happened, or something even more severe. He could have very easily flared it into the town gossip. Are you seeking to minister grace and love? God entrusts Joseph with a significant task to love and raise his own son. And we see that it came at a cost to himself. But he was willing to step into this calling and to surrender his future to God. I guess the question for us is, what, what, God, what is God calling us to? What steps might we need to take to experience this life, this abundant and fullness of life that God has for us? What might you need to give up even or surrender And there are so many ways that we can make a difference for God, even in the small, ordinary situations. One passage I really love is in Zechariah 4, uh, verse 10, where God actually reminds us not to despise the day of small things. God loves the small things. He loves the ordinary. Yes, he does extraordinary stuff. We see it all throughout the Bible, but actually from what we see in Mary and Joseph's life at least, is that he he loves working through ordinary people. Through ordinary people in the most ordinary places of life. But through it all, God is doing something extraordinary. God is bringing about the hope and salvation of the world and doing it in the most unexpected ways and to the most unexpected people. He's fulfilling what he had promised since the beginning. One thing that I actually find really extraordinary about this passage actually takes place just before we are introduced to Joseph and and Jesus' arrival. And it's in the genealogy and the ancestry list of Jesus. And, And this genealogy is actually shockingly unlike any other ancient genealogies. And to start off with, there were five women listed in the ancestry of Jesus. As modern readers, this might not sound very unusual or strike us as as, as surprising, but actually in ancient patriarchal societies, a woman virtually never was named in such lists, let alone five of them. They would have been considered general outsiders, yet here they are in Jesus' ancestry. Almost all of them were also Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab, who were Canaanites, and Ruth and Moabite. And to the ancient Jews, these, these nations were actually unclean and wouldn't be allowed to even enter or be around the temple to worship God. So what's the significance of this? Why does Matthew mention women in the ancestry in a, in a heavily patriarchal time? It's very unexpected. 
And I think Matthew goes out of his way to show us uh, that many of the barriers that once stopped people being able to fully experience God's kingdom have now been broken. Barriers between men and women, barriers between Gentiles and Jews are also broken down in this greater story that God is crafting. And he also juxtaposes women like Tamar and, and, and Rahab, who'd be associated with these sort of sexual scandals. And then he mentions Mary, the, the gentle mother of Jesus. And I think this highlights that the barriers uh, between um, who we often assume to be good and bad people are also crashing down. As Paul puts it in Romans 3, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. I think Matthew is outlining how Jesus' ancestry consists of deeply broken people, dysfunctional families, sinful men and women, both small and great. It's not just the likes of Rahab and, and Tamar that, uh, that would have been seen as moral failures. In fact, uh, when we read of Judah, who basically slept with his daughter-in-law, we read of uh, the likes of King David, who murdered a guy to get with his wife. And all through a line of kings that we read about who failed morally. So in this list, you have cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, and even insiders who have morally failed. So what does this mean? Well, there's two things in the wisdom of Tim Keller. The first is this. People who are excluded by culture or society, and even excluded by the law of God, can be brought into Jesus' family. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're a somebody or a nobody. You can be a part of Jesus' family. And the second is this. If you repent, if you turn from sin, turn to Jesus, he can cover your sin and unite you to himself. In Jesus' time, there was this idea that um, if you wanted to remain clean or holy or good, you had to disassociate or separate yourself from people who were unholy or unclean or, or bad. There was this idea that unholiness was contagious, that if you came in contact with someone, they would make you unholy. But Jesus completely flips that. He turns it upside down and actually... Um, he, it makes a point here that his holiness and his goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us. His holiness instead infects us by contact with him. You can come to him no matter how morally bankrupt you are. He can transform you. He can transform your relationship with God, your neighbors, your friends, our families, our enemies even. And as I was uh, reflecting on, on Joseph's part in all of this, as a devoted, a devout husband of Mary, as a, um, as a wonderful father to Jesus, I sort of had mixed feelings about it, if I'm honest. Uh, for me, I'm sure, um, others here as well today, the idea of a father can evoke quite a few mixed emotions. And for most of my life, I grew up in a, uh, with a single mother, had a mixture of men who showed different models of what, um, what it means to be a father or a husband. Some good, some bad. And I know many of my friends have never really known the, the feeling of having an earthly father. 
or living, who lives out this, this same integrity, the same love that Joseph lives out for his family here, a man trusting God, shaped by his love, shaped by his priorities, his, his purpose and his calling, protective of his family. And it makes me and maybe others think of what I didn't have growing up and maybe even skews our perception of God himself. But here God shows us something remarkable through Joseph's character. It displays the hope that Jesus brings to a broken world, to a broken family and broken circumstances. Joseph puts his hope in God's promise of salvation in his life and in the world today. And maybe this is a hope that you need to experience today. A hope that goes beyond our earthly ordeals, that goes beyond our broken past and gets you closer to your heavenly father. A father who absolutely loves you deeply and cares for you and wants to provide for all of your needs. He promises to be with you every moment of every day. A father that uses ordinary things you have. Your ordinary things, your gifts, your abilities, your personality for his beautiful purposes in the world. And for anyone here tonight who's coming from a broken home, less than ideal family situations, I think this passage offers us some powerful hope. Christmas is such a wonderful time. There's so much to look forward to, I'm sure. But let's not forget that this first Christmas story was no walk in the park for Mary and Joseph. They went through a lot but they trusted that God had a plan for them right where they were. They put all their hope and all their trust in him for their present and their future. I think they both really longed to see God's kingdom come through their lives. And what greater way for God to honor this by sending his one and only son into the world. Jesus. In verse 21, we see his name, Jesus which literally means to to deliver, to save, to rescue, to rescue us from our sin, heal us from our brokenness, restore us to a right relationship with God and with our neighbors. One thing that I found really, um, really sort of stood out to me as I read this is actually um, thinking about all the different characters that are in play in this story. Uh, During Joseph's life, uh, Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, uh, was one of the, uh, was the one basically reigning over the Roman Empire. And Augustus um, literally means exalted one or majestic one. And many cults and sects uh, worshipped him at at the time and ascribed divinity to him and referred to him as a god. And then we have King Herod as well, who we read about, brutal man. Uh, And he was someone who was put in charge over Israel commissioned by Augustus, and he, he brutally held on to power. And he'd kill anyone, really, as we see. He'd kill anyone who, uh, who he was even paranoid in the slightest would take it from him. He even killed one of his wives and three of his sons. A world of power, control, might, domination, self-serving kings and kingdoms. This was the world into which Jesus was born. But what I find so mind-blowing is that it's into this world that while we see men seeking to make themselves gods, Matthew begins his headline with, 
the God that made himself man. A God who lowered himself and humbled himself. And that he reveals himself first, not, not to an emperor or a king, but to the most ordinary, unexpected people in an unexpected way. Philippians 2 Verses 5 to 10 says this about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, Jesus, the servant, the king. The promise of, of hundreds not thousands of years of humanity's longings and our deepest need still today. God with us. God with us. Emmanuel. As it says in Matthew 1.23, God with us. Now, for me, this is also something that might generate mixed feelings. And especially after the two years that we've just lived. Maybe you quite a few people in this room, but I know there are those who probably feel and have felt or might still feel a sense of what, what does this even mean? Where was God when I lost my job? Where was God when I lost my friend or a loved one? Where was God when I felt lonely and isolated? Where was God when I wrestled with anxiety and sadness? Where was he when I was behind on my bills and rent? Maybe we still wonder these things. And I wonder too if, if Mary and Joseph felt some of this at all. Did they feel like binning the angel's message when they had to flee to Egypt shortly after Jesus' birth? The Christmas story gets dark quite quickly. But what Matthew shows us is that God has come to us in person to bring light into the darkness that we face. Steve Rouse, a church leader and a friend of mine from Balaam, wrote this reflection, which I found quite helpful. It's only a part of what he wrote, but I found this part really, uh, really, really reflective. And he says this, Every part of Jesus' life was marked by, dis- by the disappointment of human experience. Poverty, loss, temptation, betrayal, and death. And yet he touched those who others would avoid. He drew close when others turned away. And he ate with those who others rejected. Emmanuel's presence illuminates a new way for us to view everything, including our dark times. We may end this year feeling that darkness has dominated, but the Christmas story radiates the greater truth that his light has come into our darkness so that we can truly know and say, Emmanuel, God is with us. I think the most striking point in all of this, in all of this history, comes with this birth of one small, vulnerable human being in the midst of the darkest of times. The word became flesh, as John puts it, to be with us, to be with me, and to be with you. We can find hope in his promises of salvation and forgiveness that he won for us through his death on the cross And we can also celebrate that he rose from the dead and promises that new life for us too. Lastly this, I'm coming to land shortly, but this passage, I think, 
also gives us a very pastoral message about God's presence in the darkest of times. Quite often, um, when I've heard stories from people about when they've experienced, when they've deeply experienced God's love um, it's, and, and healing and, and forgiveness and salvation has actually been in, in some of the most darkest moments of their lives. And it's not to say that you can't um, enjoy God or experience him in the most happiest moments either. I'm not saying that at all. But quite often when things are going really well for us, we can have this tendency to start trusting in our own strength and in our own accomplishments, making ourselves the main character in the story instead of being shaped by Jesus' story. I wonder if, the, if Pete and the band could come back up. But the amazing thing is that this story that we read about in Matthew becomes our story too. We're adopted into the family of faith whose roots go back to the very beginning. God using ordinary people through ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary purpose in the world. This story reminds us that we all have a part to play in God's great grand design. You and I can find our identity and our purpose in the one who stands at the heart of God's plan for this universe. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, our extraordinary savior, our extraordinary king, wonder if you want to encounter this extraordinary God and Savior this evening. We're now going to have a moment to pray and worship this God with us. And this is a chance for all of us, I guess, to pray this for ourselves, God with us, with me. But it's also a chance for us to pray God with us as a community, as a church, Maybe this is a chance to reflect on what, what it means for you, what God being with you means. What steps is he calling you to take in your own journey of faith this Advent season? What will walking with Jesus require of you in the year to come? What plans of your own, as good as they are or might be, do you need to surrender? This could be our, <laughs> this could be our money, this could be our time, it could be our gifts, our personality, our work, our relationships. What areas of life do you need God's light to shine? What dark areas do you need healing and renewal? Ask him for it now. If we can learn anything from this story in Matthew, it's that God works in the most unexpected ways with the most unexpected people, but he does so so that we can expect of him to receive his grace in our times of need. So I wonder if you stand as we, as we pray and as we worship. I'm going to just pray for us, and then uh, the band will lead us in time of worshiping this God right here, right now, Emmanuel, God with us. So Lord God, God, you are with us. God, you are with us. God, thank you that you are with us. So powerful, God. So amazing. In a world that's so marked by dominion, control, power, selfishness and self-serving, Lord, you break through, you break in, and you enter our hearts. 
You transform us from the inside out. You change our purpose. You change our identity. You, you give us hope. Lord, we become a part of your family. We become your children. So right now, God, I pray that for anyone here in particular who feels like they are left out of that, that they would really, truly get to experience that tonight. God with us, Emmanuel. God be with us right now. I pray that every single person here would be able to, to experience you in fresh and new ways this Advent season, Lord, as we, as we reflect on your coming 2,000 years ago. But Lord, more than that, we reflect on what you are to do with our lives going forward. We entrust to you our present and our future. And God, we give to you all that, all that we have. We want to surrender it to you now, Lord. Thank you that you use the most ordinary people. Thank you that you use me, that you use every single person here as ordinary as we are. And Lord, you, you shape us and you, and, you, and you just use even the most ordinary things that we can give. You could use stones, <laughs> if you wanted to. But Lord, we have the privilege of singing your praise instead of rocks. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to christchurchlondon.org.